Welcome to Fascinating Truth, where godly men suit up for the front lines of the battlefield. I'm your host, David Miles. You ready? Here we go. And welcome back again, fellow fasteners. We continue our special forces training this week. We're diving into the third tactic today. That tactic, violence. Yes, I said violence. You heard me. I said violence. I know. How on earth can this be a tactic on a godly warfare topic? How can it be a Christian podcast calling for violence? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, I ask you to hear me all the way out so you understand what I'm talking about. I don't want to be misquoted as calling for violence. I just said that is the tactic. Let's begin to dive into that. But before we do, let's think about what it means when I say violence. First of all, that word elicits a whole slew of responses, especially probably even in you, it could elicit more than one. But the point is across the spectrum of people who could hear this, across all the different backgrounds and histories and growing up and your upbringing, your experiences. Some people have been through trauma. Some have been through war. Some have been through horrific murders, brutal beatings. Some people have lived in foreign countries and passed different things. This word violence can be a very, very different word to different people. Okay, I am aware of that, and that is still considered violence. We all come to the table with a different understanding, a different relationship, and a different way of going about thinking about violence. Okay, so some of you may have grown up outside of the church. Maybe you had a rough life, or you had a few tours in the military. Maybe you had parents that really had difficulties with anger issues, or there were other problems causing trauma. Some people may gravitate towards violence. Others may begin to see it when it's not even there as a result of the trauma that they've experienced, okay? But because of what you've been through, the idea of violence is just way too familiar. It's way too close to home. Let's be honest. This may have alienated you from the church to a degree and from other people because they did not pass through the same things that you've been through, okay? Others, and we're going to be honest, we're going to call it blessed, have gone through an upbringing that where they had good parents that shielded them from these things and that brought them into a place where they did not have to experience these horrific things as children. Now, first of all, I do want to say God will utilize that and is in charge, seated on the throne. He knows what he's doing. And for those of you who have been through these things, there is a reason and a purpose. God can redeem that and make it one of your uh, strongest qualities. All right, we will cover that in addition in, in uh, future episodes. God can definitely do that for you. So don't don't give up on that. Don't think about this as something that has made you handicapped or less than. It is simply one of your crosses, one of your battles that you have to go through. But God will give you the victory and there is a purpose that you have been there. But if you've been brought up in the church and you brought up in a sheltered environment, your relationship to violence may be completely different. The word itself is just so evil. It's so anti-God. It's so all these different things. Okay, So that is where you come at this picture because of your upbringing, where you've been through, okay? So we all have different upbringings, depending on what religion, on what area of the world, of what area of town, of all these different things of where you lived and how you were raised 
can change the way that this word hits home for you. Now, that's across the entire spectrum. That doesn't care about your religion. That is the human race's general rule. Question, what do you think the position of the church is on violence? What does it see in that word violence? Well, to be honest, that depends on when you ask the question. We go back to the Crusades, we had a completely different understanding, and I would definitely argue a false and a misunderstanding of that word and how it relates to Christianity. But the bottom line still remains, as a general rule, coming from that time and heading into the modern era, now Christianity is much more seeker-friendly and God is love and these other things going on. So we really have to stop and say, what is going on here? And why on earth would David say that violence is the third tactic? Because remember, these tactics are things that we utilize to give ourselves the advantage, to give ourselves the edge. How can he do this? This is supposed to be one of the defining features that separates Christianity from religions like Islam and these other ones that openly call for violence. At least those who attain, you know, believe in certain tenets and certain parts of it, the most fundamental and orthodox of Islam, for example, or other religions that are calling for violence as part of what they believe. Yet Christianity is supposed to stand apart and not call for that at all. So how can you call this one of the tactics? What are you doing? Because, you know, Jesus is compassionate and loving. Jesus has turned the other cheek. God is, God is love and mercy. And God would never. Okay. Yes, it is the tactic. It is called violence. And we are going to go into that and we're going to unpack that right now. I will say this. The problem that we run into with the current uh, viewpoint of the Christian church, there's a stumbling block. There's something that gets in our way. Okay. If we're trying to live this out, this God is love and mercy and you know, God is never violence. We have a problem, and I'll be honest with you, it's a problem we keep running into today in the Christian church that is, it's really, I mean, some people are trying to get rid of the problem, which would be admirable. You know, if you're tripping over something all the time and it keeps getting in your way, you should probably just get rid of it. Problem is, that thing that keeps tripping us up as we try to live out the modern version of Christianity is the Bible itself. It's scripture. It continues to get in our way as we try to make this our mainstream doctrine. Okay, God is love. He would never, under any circumstances, he doesn't want violence. Okay, first of all, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Let's look at the Old Testament. You can say, well, no, I mean, you know, yeah, God called for this, but maybe he didn't mean it that way or what. No, 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 let's, let's go. go uh, Genesis 19, 24 through 25. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going into the whole story. A lot to unpack there, especially considering our day and time. But let's not go there. We're just going to read verses 24 and 25 of chapter 19. Genesis 19, 24 to 25 says quickly, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Who threw it? God. From where? From him directly. There's no See, we don't have another cause here. This is attributed directly to God. And he was in judgment. He was doing this. He slew everyone in the entire valley and even everything that was growing in the valley. I'm talking livestock, plants. I mean, the place was scorched, okay? I'm not seeing a whole lot of love and mercy there. It's very interesting for a God who's love and never changes. Yet here we are today, 
and we're saying that there's no place for violence because God is, he's not like that. Hmm. Yeah, that's one passage. Let's keep reading. All right. David's mighty men, 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 12. Whole lot to unpack here. We're just going to read it today. All right. 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 12. David's mighty men. These are the names of David's, David's mightiest warriors. Again, this is verses 8 through 12. The first was Jeshobim, um, the Achmonite, who was leader of the three, the three mightiest warriors among David's men. He once used his spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. Next in rank among the three was Eliezer, son of Dodai, a descendant of Ahoah. Once Eliezer and David stood together against the Philistines when the entire Israelite army had fled. He killed Philistines until his hand was so tired to even let go of his sword. Excuse me, let me read that again. He killed Philistines until his hand was too tired to even let go of his sword. And the Lord gave him a great victory that day. The rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. Next in rank was Shammah, son of Agi, from Harar. One time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a a field full of lentils. The Israelite army fled, but Shammah held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Now, what's interesting when we read these passages was, is that who is credited in all cases for strengthening these men? They stood in the Lord. They fought under the guidance of the Lord. The Lord empowered them. God was right there with them. He helped these men. And in just these three instances... The total number slaughtered was in the thousands. Now, these were these mightiest men. They weren't mighty because they fought one battle. These are just some of their great exploits. Imagine the tens of thousands of men in all of David's conquest that these men slew under the power of the Lord. Okay? You starting to get the point here? Now, this is not even to go in to the conquest of Canaan when they, took the, when they were eradicating entire people groups. What about the people that God swallowed up with the earth who rebelled at Mount Sinai? What about the fire of the Lord that went out and killed the sons of Aaron for their strange fire? What about all these other examples where God reacts in a violent way? Yet God is not violence, and violence has no place in God. Interesting. Now, don't get ahead of me now. we got to unpack this thing, but let's just I think we're putting to bed one of these thoughts. But there's always the criticism, and this is the next thing that always comes up in this discussion. But David, that was the Old Testament. Jesus came as the Lamb of God, love and peace, and he came with a new covenant, and things are new now, and it's not like that anymore. He calmed the angry God down. Now we got Jesus in the mix, and he's calmed everything down. Okay, first off, I want to know what Bible you're reading that you think Jesus and God are different people. Okay, because this is the Bible you get when you start reading in the Mormon Bible or you start reading Jehovah's Witness specifically. Okay, you start reading in their Bibles and yeah, that distinction is made. But in the Christian Bible, I want to know what version you're reading where you look at Jesus and God as different people. Oh, Jesus and the Father are different aspects of the Godhead. But God, Jesus is God. The Father is God. They are all the Godhead. We're going to have to go over that in, in episode two, I can see. All right, I can just hear you now. We got to go over that. We'll get that another episode. But that, I need to know what you're reading because that is not who the Bible says that Jesus is. Second, I also want to know who this Jesus that's all love and goodness that you're talking about is. 
Okay? What? Where is this Jesus in your Bible? Have you read your Bible? Have you read the kind of things that this guy did? Or are you going off the pictures that you see? These Renaissance era pictures where we have this effeminate European, almost girl looking man with long shampoo model hair. That guy? Is that the guy that you see? It looks like he never worked a day in his life and he just kind of floats around on a cloud all the time. Would never lift a hand like you see in the paintings. Some of the uh, uh, some of the Catholic works of art where Jesus is just so pathetic and limp looking. Is that the Jesus? Because the Jesus we see in scripture grew up as a carpenter, which in those days was probably not just wood, but probably meant he was a carpenter and a stonemason. The guy worked around with fishermen, walked everywhere he went. There's nothing in scripture that make, leads us to believe that this guy was a wuss. All right. But beyond just his background, let's take a look at some of the things he did. All right. Let's look at John chapter 2, 13 through 17. It's probably one of our clearest pictures of Jesus operating in a way that is really uncomfortable and inconvenient for the current modern Christian philosophy. John 2, 13 through 17. Let's take a look at it real quick. Beginning verse 13, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. So far, so good. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. All right. So, let's look back. Key points. All right. Jesus gets mad, makes a whip, clears out the entire temple, and just yells at everybody. Okay? And what happens when he does that? The, the, immediately, the disciples realize he's fulfilling scripture. So number one, the Bible says Jesus would act like this. Number two, Jesus acted like this. All right? So I want to know, where's this wussy, excuse me, could you maybe stop, please, Jesus guy? Okay? Where is he at? Because that's the way we would deal with things. That's the way that Christianity today says that Jesus should have handled the situation. All right? Or should have just cast a magic spell and make everybody happy. Where's that pansy? The one who wouldn't hurt a fly. Where's that guy? Because I don't see him here. I see a man so eat up with fury for God that he left, made a whip himself with his own hands. Have you ever done a whip? Okay, a whip that works. You don't just throw a couple together. There's a weaving, twisting. You've got to do this. This takes some strength and some skill, and it takes some time. He leaves, makes a whip, comes back, and he cleared out the entire temple of this reckless evil. Okay, do you know how big the temple is? This is the main courtyard area of the temple. This is huge, and it is full. We're right before the Passover. This place is packed, and he clears everyone out. All of the animals, all of the people, flipping over tables. And guess what? Let me, let me put out something else here, too. There's a thing called the temple guard. Armed soldiers designed to keep the peace. Not only that, but there are probably hundreds to thousands of people in this part of Jerusalem at this time. No one dared to stand up to Jesus. 
I'm sorry. If somebody's going around making a mess, somebody's going to stand up and do something. I mean, with that many people, somebody's going to try to stop him unless there is something in his eye. If unless he is eat up with something and he is so violent, so aggressive that no one would dare. Not even the guard got in his way. He cleared out the temple. So we have sustained aggression. We have violence coming out of this Jesus guy that's supposed to be all love and peace, the Lamb of, the Lamb of God. I'm going to be honest, right here, we begin to see more of a lion of Judah, as he's also described, okay? So what I'm saying here is that Jesus that we have painted and portrayed is not always the way that we treat him to be. Because you may, you may be thinking with this one, but no, 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 Jesus is, you know, all turn the other cheek, long-suffering, you know, love, joy, and peace. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to go ahead and put this to rest too. We can talk about this in another episode, but turn the other cheek. Do, do you realize the, the context of when he's using that phrase, what he's talking about? When he says, turn the other cheek, that's when someone insults you, mistreats you, or hurts your pride, okay? That's one thing. And that may be a time when you're supposed to just endure and shine your light because of the way they're treating you. You have that long suffering and you endure. Jesus did that plenty of times. He's going to the cross. They're crucifying him. But that was for our good and part of what God called him to do. So he suffered. He said he was silent before Herod. Okay. So there's an aspect of that, right? He's not silent here. He's not just laying down here. It's something different. So what's the difference? Let's look at scripture itself. I, we don't even need to hypothesize. We've got it painted right here in front of us. So what's the difference? Okay. So if somebody's coming after you, trying to insult you, you're going through a rough time, maybe you're even being persecuted. There may be a time that you are called to suffer, to pass through that, to keep your mouth shut and shine a light. But when evil is trying to take out God's work, when evil is trying to harm your family, when evil is trying to stop what God is doing and it rears its ugly head to come and to blaspheme and to stamp out what God is doing, when Satan is spitting in God's face and coming after his sheep, you are never to turn the other cheek. That is when you are to be filled with a fervent and a righteous fury and you take the enemy head on. This is when violence becomes part of our mantra and our battle cry. This is when we step up. Now notice, it is a righteous fury. It is a righteous violence because you are doing it in the right time, the right place, and even in the right way. Jesus did not kill anybody. Okay? But he made it clear and he stood up when the enemy was profaning the steps, profaning the presence of God. Jesus would not tolerate and could not tolerate it. Okay? So we can plainly see that there are moments where violence must be okay. Because God did it. Jesus did it. It's part. Now, are they eat up with it? No. It's not what we see most of the time in Jesus' ministry. But there are moments where he has no choice. He gets kind of testy with the Pharisees. He comes after their teachings pretty aggressively. We see that at plenty of times as well. So violence has its place. But I'm going to be honest, and I don't think I need to tell you, violence is not always okay. In fact, you may our teaching would be under would be good to say there is a time and a place for violence, and it's not that often. Okay? Because the Bible says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We're not supposed to take stuff in our own hands. You are not God's policeman. You're not his executioner. You're not the jury and judge. There will be moments, there will be times where violence has its place. 
but justice ultimately lays in the hands of God, not in yours. But by the same token, you are a warrior on a mission. All the allusions to warfare and to being a soldier are not there for nothing. They are there for a reason. All right? So very, very important. So let's keep going. So the question would then be very, very safe to ask, David, well, if that's the case, how do we implement violence in a biblical and a godly way? Where does this fit in today? All right, we don't have a temple we're trying to clear. What's going on? How do we do this? Well, let's go read another verse, Matthew eleven twelve. This actually gives us a hint, something um, I'd looked over for years. Finally uh, saw this here, Matthew eleven twelve, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. All right, so there was violence before John the Baptist. But what kind of violence did we see all through the Old Testament? We saw physical violence. But when John came, the kingdom of heaven came. And the violent take it by force. Okay, so now we're talking about a kingdom of heaven. We're now talking spiritual. It's a very simple statement, but it's also very true. We see that shift. Jesus may have had some physical violence, but we see most of his violence and aggression in that case, he was clearing out the physical temple. That's not even the thing anymore. We are that. He tore the veil and changed that when he died. But Jesus made it very clear most of the battles that he fought on the forefront were spiritual after that. We saw most of his aggression and his violence toward the Pharisees and their false teaching that was leading the sheep astray, hurting the people of God. To this day, God has a violentness to him and an aggression that he will take towards those. He makes it very clear. It'd be better that a stone be tied about your neck and you be tossed into the sea than you hurt one of his little ones. God doesn't play around to this day. And Jesus said that. And Jesus was very clear about that. So God has called us to spiritual violence. This is one we'll see. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Okay, first of all, let me clarify this right now. Someone's attacking your family. You don't pray for them aggressively. You stop them, okay? There is a physical, just like Jesus had to get physically violent, there is times where you will need to implement physical violence. But that needs to come out of a spiritual warrior, a spiritual trained state where you are already in that space spiritually and that can have its outcropping when you need it, that that is there and ready, but in the right godly fashion and in the godly way, looking to see God's purpose portrayed and done here on earth. Okay, so I'm just gonna get that out of the way. Under no circumstances is David calling for you to be passive and let your family get hurt. No way am I calling for that. There's a time for physical violence as well when we have to defend. I believe that you have the right to defend yourself up to and including killing the other person in the event that is the necessary course to defend, especially in a day and time with guns. That is a very likely situation in the event you have to defend yourself. Okay, The Bible condemns murder, not killing. Okay, it'd be very contradictory for God to have his his servants engaged in warfare and then condemn them beforehand for murder. No, murder, premeditated, uncalled for, unrighteous. You get somebody attacking your family and they end up dying because you're defending them. Completely cleared. As long as all this, you know, I can't lay a blanket statement out there depending on the circumstances and the details, but you have the right to defend yourself. And if someone dies in the process and you were defending your family, I believe as long as all the details line up, you stand justified. Okay, so let's get that out of the way. Now, getting back to this, God has called us to spiritual violence. Don't believe me? Check out Ephesians, the whole book, but especially chapter 6. What do we read there when we studied the armor? Okay, it's all warfare. 
That's what Ephesians is talking about. In chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and dominions and spirits and rulers and all this other stuff. And we put on the armor that, again, warfare, central tactic, a lot of violence and fighting in warfare just comes with the territory, okay? So when the enemy comes after you or your family or tries to stop what God is doing or tries to destroy the promise of God, you fight and you fight to win against the enemy. Mercy is for humans, but none for the enemy. You engage Satan, there is no mercy. There is no love. There is a violent aggression inside of God himself, standing inside of that power. I keep bringing this up because you don't just get to get angry and go off in a carnal tangent against the enemy. You will get destroyed if you face him on his terms and you face him outside of God. But inside of God, you have a power that you are commanded to wield and to use. There is a violence that has to come from deep inside of you. Now, for some of you, this comes too easily. Some of you need to balance this out with the love and mercy of God. Otherwise, it's vengeful, spiteful, and simply evil. That is not the right violence. It has to be that godly, righteous fury, and God has to temper that in you if you tend towards violence. It has to be like Jesus expressed, okay? So you're not off the hook just because you you have no problem with violence. You've got to do it the right way. In fact, you may have a harder battle because you've got to take something you're already used to and completely transform it in God. But he can do it. And he can use that and you can be his warrior, part of his special forces. Now, for others of you that may have grown up in the church, violence goes against every fiber of your being. Guess what? You're not automatically Christian and Jesus-like just because of that. No, you get to stand up and be violent too. You have to step up. You too are at an imbalance and you got to dig deep and find it because you are a soldier and you have to have this have this inside of you. If you're going to face the enemy, you've got to have the violence. You've got to have the aggression. The godly, righteous fury has to be there when you need it. Because you can't be passive when you're under attack. You can't fight the enemy if you're just sitting there with your hands folded and just kind of praying for him and waving a white flag at him. It doesn't work that way. You can't let the enemy destroy your family. What about when Satan comes after you and God begins to use you and now your family's under attack spiritually? What are you going to do? Are you going to sacrifice them? What do you do if, if somebody's trying to attack your family physically? You're just going to sit there and say, oh, I'm so sorry you're getting beat up and killed by this man. What if somebody's coming after you trying to rape your wife? Huh? And I'm sorry if you've actually been through that, but we got to be honest with this. What's your response? Are you going to allow that kind of evil? You can't. Now, maybe you were in a situation where there was nothing you could do. God knows the situation. God sees it, okay? But if you had the ability, would you not have done something? Well, you have the ability spiritually to defend your family. So you have no excuse. I don't care what your background is. You've got to find it. You've got to step up. You've got to be a man. You've got to have righteous, godly violence. Because here's the problem that we have, guys. We live in a world that says that manliness and being a Christian man do not go together. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. What we've created, this effeminate pansy weakling version that we've created where men are not allowed to have any manly qualities is wrong. We'll go over it in a a future episode just how manly Jesus was. I think you've begun to see a little bit of it now. And what we call manliness in the world of getting drunk and loving women and doing all this other stuff, that's not manly. That's a perversion. But compared to what we see in Christian circles, it sure seems more manly. 
And that's got to change. And it starts with us. We are called to violence, but the godly, righteous violence, like what Jesus exemplified. You have no excuses, either for excessive violence or for lack of it. If you're going to be part of these special forces, of God's special forces, you don't have a choice. You have to adopt this spiritual, godly warfare and embrace this tactic. Only when you are ready to fight, because you can have all the vantage, you can have all the veracity, but if you aren't actually going to engage the enemy, he's not going to care. You can see it all day long, but if you're not actually going to fight, well, then what, you, what good are you? You've got to have this down there. And then when you come to this moment, you are called to this. You cannot forsake it. So guys, what I want you to do is take this to heart. I'm giving it more of a broad spectrum. I hope you understand and you're listening to what I said, that this violence is only in those moments that you're engaging the enemy and you're engaging pure evil in a spiritual sense. Sometimes that may spill over into physical responses. But you better, you better make sure that when you engage in this violence, that that violence is justified. Well, there'll be moments that you will know you have to do something and you've got to be ready. But don't you dare blame anything of what we talked about today on your using violence for the wrong reasons. If you're hitting a child, I don't care what the reason is. Hitting a woman, you'd be ashamed of yourself. You deserve some violence at that point. So you listen to me. You put it in place and you put it in place right all right, take this to heart. Because guys, I'm going to be honest with you, you've probably never heard this before. You've probably never heard this before in a Christian circle that there is an aspect of violence that you are to embrace. But that's part of what Scripture teaches us, right? You've not been given a spirit of cowardice, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. That right there encapsulates what you're looking for. It's in Timothy. That right there encapsulates it. You ain't supposed to be a coward, afraid, timid. Those are the three translations of that first word. But powerful, loving, and have a sound mind, self-discipline, self-control, those are the words that we use to define the last word. You better have your head on straight, walking in love and in power, and you better not be afraid. That's what God's called you to, complete command of the situation. And if, I be, if you're listening to what I'm saying, you can begin to see how this is godly. And this is higher than what we consider normal, just reckless manliness. No, this is true manliness where you have control over it, but it's there. You have access to this force and this power within you. And if it must come out, it will. Okay. You don't go looking for fights, but they'll find you and you better be ready when they do. Okay. So we should exemplify manliness. We need to put to bed this Christian wussiness that we've called manliness and it's not, or we've just forsaken. Man, you've got to give it all up. No, there is an aspect of that that is ingrained into your DNA that God put there for a reason, but it has to be expressed the right way. So we should exemplify manliness to the utmost, put into shame the world's version of it, and we should make that look like pathetic activity. There should be a manliness in us as men of God. We should exemplify that, but by God's definition. Okay? All right, guys. So just take this to heart. This is violence. This is the third tactic. We got one more coming up next week, and it's going to be a good one. But I need you guys to hang in there. Pray about this one. God will begin to reveal to you more and more how this needs to present itself in your life. Do it prayerfully. Because again, this is a dangerous topic because of how our world sees it. We don't automatically understand this. We've got to temper this and be transformed and study to understand what God's trying to tell us with this. 
put it to pra- put it in practice, take it to heart. That's all from me, guys. So just remember, dig in, dig deep, and press on. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Fastening Truth. Don't forget to subscribe. And remember, many are called, but few are chosen. We'll see you next time.